to No Baller. I am Chris Rawl, and it is Friday, May 14th. On today's show, a discussion of the warped ways we analyze playoff success or the lack thereof. All that on the other side of a word from our presenting sponsor, Traeger Grills. With your masquerading Traeger invented the original wood-fired grill over 30 years ago in Mount Angel, Oregon. They continue to lead the industry as the world's number one selling wood-fired grill, perfected by decades of mastering the craft of wood-fired cooking. You can find out more at TraegerGrills.com. I'm a believer in the cyclical nature of life, and because of that, we're going to take Friday's show where we tread somewhat on Monday. If you remember at the start of this week, I spoke about Steph Curry and Connor McDavid and the ways that we judge individual success, especially in the regular season, and how it differs depending upon if a player has had success in the postseason or not. Today, we are going to take a deeper look at the postseason itself and how we judge success there and how we judge players and teams that make or miss the playoffs. Uh, there's a lot of warped ways that go into the analyzation of these ideas. And I'm going to talk about those today. Some of the things that I think stand out when I hear fans talk about them or the media talk about them. And my brain goes, that doesn't really match up with how I think. I'm going to start with a very familiar debate. Jordan versus LeBron. Uh, everybody has had this debate in their life if they pay attention to sports, and everybody's paid attention to the various things that go into it. I don't want to talk about who I think is better because uh, that's just boring and, and played out and all that kind of stuff. I want to talk about the way that we analyze the debate itself and, and what goes into these talking points. Finals record. So we all know Jordan, 6-0 and in the finals. LeBron, 4-6 and in the finals. And when you hear this debate, this is one of the main points that is bandied about. Uh, Jordan, the consummate winner, never lost in the finals. LeBron, he's played in 10 finals and only won four. That's a mark against him. I find this to be strange, as always, because it, it feeds into one of these warped ways we analyze. The idea that it's almost worse to make it far in the playoffs and lose than it is to just lose early on or to sometimes not even make it at all. Uh, you can miss the playoffs intermittently, and, and we don't really hold that against a player in the way that we do if you continually make the playoffs but don't win. It's very bizarre. We will hold it against you eventually if you miss the playoffs every single year, but there's this strange limbo that kind of exists where you can miss the playoffs and then make it sometimes and not necessarily have great success but it allows us to acknowledge your greatness as an individual player and not necessarily hold you accountable for your team's success or failure. It's very strange, and I'll get into that more after I talk about this LeBron Jordan thing. So the Bulls, six finals appearances with Jordan. They're favored in all of them, at least a minus 200 gambling favorite in five of the six. The only one that was not that was the last year against the Jazz. So they're heavily favored in five of six finals, and they were a minus 115 favorite in the 1998 finals against the Jazz. So based upon expectations, I would say this is the best team in all of those series. The only one that it's close to a coin flip is that last Jazz series, which they won. 
And so you would expect the Bulls to win a lot of those series. And part of that is tied into Jordan being a good player. And part of that is tied into the fact that he had a really good team around him. Uh, One of the things that I think is kind of dismissed when it comes to the whole discussion of, of surroundings and Michael Jordan is the first year he retires. The Bulls go 55 and 27 in 1994. The only full season they play without Jordan during his retirement. Uh, Two games worse than they were the year prior. So Jordan leaves and it's still a really good team. They make the second round of the playoffs. They lose in seven games. Uh, It's a really good team there. And when you have a really good team and you add one of, if not the greatest player of all time onto that team, that makes them a continual championship team and a championship favorite. That's how that kind of thing works. So I look at the LeBron side of the equation and I go, okay, LeBron has played in 10 finals. According to Vegas oddsmakers, LeBron's team was favored in three of those finals. So he slightly outperformed expectations on that side. He's won four out of the 10, uh, twice as an underdog against Oklahoma City and against the Golden State Warriors, and lost once as a favorite against the Mavericks. So again, relative to expectations, LeBron would be coming out on the plus side, just like Jordan would be coming slightly out on the plus side of his expectations. Just because they're favored doesn't mean you expect them to go 6-0. and but at the same time, when you're a heavy favorite in five, I would say it's reasonable to expect probably about a five and one record in those things. So the numbers are always more nuanced than we make them out to be. That's something I talked about yesterday and something I'll probably reference again and again on the show. We can look at a hard number and say Jordan is six and zero in the finals. LeBron is four and six in the finals. This is an easy, clear indicator that Jordan is much more of a winner than LeBron. LeBron has lost as many times in the finals as Jordan has won. And yet we go a little bit below the surface. And I think there's a lot more to those numbers themselves than we make it out to be. And that ties into supporting cast. And there's always more that goes into a player's performance than they control. Another theme that I will constantly reference on this show. I'm going to shift gears into another sport. Because when we talk about making or missing the playoffs, it's sometimes a curse, it's sometimes a blessing. We're never really sure which it is until a player's career is playing out. And I talk about that weird limbo where you can make the playoffs enough, but you don't have to make it a ton because if you do and you don't win every year, that will be held against you. I think of a player like Drew Brees, who is acknowledged as one of the best quarterbacks of all time. Statistically speaking, his totals are up there with anybody who has played the sport. In 19 seasons as a starter, Drew Brees has made the playoffs 10 times. He's won one Super Bowl. He's had multiple heartbreaking losses in the playoffs, most notably the Stephon Diggs miracle reception in Minneapolis and the loss to the Rams in the NFC title game that had the controversial no-call on pass interference at the end. Drew Brees throws an interception in overtime. Greg Zerlang boots a 5-million-yard field goal, and they don't win that year. He's found this strange balance that exists when it comes to public perception and analysis and the way that we talk about players. 10 out of 19 years, he's made the playoffs. He's won one Super Bowl. And I don't think anybody really thinks of Drew Brees as this consummate loser and nobody really thinks of Drew Brees as a consummate winner we go that guy's won a Super Bowl and he's been great throughout his career let's tip our cap to him and just place him amongst the best quarterbacks of all time 
which is great. That's where Drew Brees should be. Where I find it to be frustrating and a little bit strange is when we bring his peers into the discussion. And I look at the narrative arcs of two quarterbacks who, who are in that same category, Peyton Manning and Aaron Rodgers. And the analysis and perception of those people do not match up to what it is with Drew Brees. Peyton Manning with the Colts, he made the playoffs 11 out of 13 years and was routinely murdered once he got to the playoffs by teams that were much, much better. You remember those years, the Colts, they always had a great offense. A lot of that was because of Peyton Manning. Some of that was because they had Edron James and Marvin Harrison and Reggie Wayne and Dallas Clark. But they never matched up as a team, as an all-encompassing team to the teams they were playing, most notably the New England Patriots. And so Manning would milk everything he could out of this roster, and they would continually make the playoffs, 11 out of 13 years. And yet, because they would make it, and they only won one Super Bowl in that time, and they had a lot of big losses in the playoffs during that time, because 10 other years they didn't win there, that became a stain on Manning. And it became part of the talking point when we talked about Peyton Manning. Well, yeah, he's great in the regular season. All, and, and that success has translated into getting a team into the playoffs that probably shouldn't be there most years. But because he's now there and we're watching him in the playoffs every year and he has not found the level of playoff success that we, for reasons unknown, think he should have, that's a stain. And we don't like that about Peyton Manning now. And so he, he's more associated with being a loser in our mind than the person who is making the playoffs at roughly a 50% clip and has a similar level of success when he makes the playoffs in those years. And that person is judged very differently. That's interesting. That's a warped way of analyzing the situation, in my opinion, because the further you go, that should always be celebrated. LeBron's career, I go, why would we judge LeBron for continually making the NBA Finals and losing? Why would it have been better if he had lost in the conference finals or the conference semis or even not made the playoffs some of those years? Why would that have been better? If six of those finals losses, if they were all playoff misses and first round exits, would we really think that's cooler that LeBron's 4-0 in the NBA finals? That's a train of thought and logic that I can't really follow. Aaron Rodgers a man who I've done an entire show about and is my favorite player of all time, he's followed a similar narrative arc to Peyton Manning. He's made the playoffs in 10 of his 13 years as starter, and two of those seasons were directly tied into the fact that Rodgers got injured and couldn't play. So when he's healthy, 10 out of 11 years, that's really good. And the Packers have not been great as a team during that time frame. And I've watched every game, and one of the frustrating things that I've run up against is this is a really cool and good thing that Aaron Rodgers is doing. He's dragging an inferior roster into the playoffs continually. And yeah, they're getting bonked on by teams that are better on them or better than them, but that's not something that I think we should be pissing on. That's something that we should just acknowledge and say, well, yeah, he shouldn't win those games. They're a seven-point underdog consistently in the playoffs. Why would I hold him accountable for losing a game that odds say they should definitely lose? I'll go back to Manning because the way we talk about winning and losing, it's never really tied into a more nuanced logic. It's seen in black and white terms. It's the Jordan is 6-0 in the finals. LeBron is 4-6 and in the finals. Case closed. Don't talk about it again. How many Super Bowl wins do you have as a quarterback? 
If it's one, that's fine. If it's two, that's better. Case closed. So Manning goes through this entire uh, 13-season career with the Colts, and he goes to the Broncos. And his final year with the Broncos, they end up winning the Super Bowl, the second of his career. Before that, he had one Super Bowl, and we viewed that as a failure, much like we do with Rodgers, because they're always in the playoffs. And we say, if you're always in the playoffs, you should have won more Super Bowls, not taking into account that their team is probably not as good as the teams around them consistently. So Manning carried that load with him. And his final year, 2015, Denver wins a Super Bowl. And the black and white logic crowd goes, well, finally we can acknowledge Manning is the good quarterback and the winner that he is. And it's always more nuanced than this. Because now, me, a person who's been pining for Peyton Manning his entire career and saying, this guy's really good, even if he loses in the playoffs. I don't see how we, we think these two things can't exist simultaneously. Now I flipped to the other side in his final season. Because that year, Peyton Manning, he starts nine regular season games. At one point, he gets benched for Brock Osweiler because of how poorly he's playing. In those nine games, the Broncos go seven and two. Manning throws nine touchdowns to 17 interceptions on 6.8 yards per attempt. By almost any metric that you measured Peyton Manning that year, he was, if not the worst starter in football, one of the very worst by every single metric that you could find. So they go into the playoffs and the Broncos start him in all three playoff games. And it was a debate whether or not they should start him or Brock Osweiler. Think of that. That's crazy to acknowledge. The Broncos have a defense that was on fire. Von Miller, DeMarcus Ware, they're getting 20 pressures a game, it seems like, every single playoff game. And they win their three playoff games. First game against Pittsburgh, Peyton Manning goes 21 for 37 for 222 yards. No touchdowns, no picks, six yards per attempt even. Not statistics you would ever look at and say, that quarterback probably won a playoff game. And yet they won. We go to the next game against New England. 17 for 32, 176 yards, two touchdowns, no picks, 5.5 yards per attempt. Again, not really notable statistics. We go to the Super Bowl against Carolina. 13 for 23, 141 yards, no touchdowns, one interception, 6.1 yards per attempt. Three playoff games. He throws two touchdowns combined. He's averaging less than six yards per attempt. And we watched this and it ended. And instead of going, wow, this is an amazing team accomplishment for the Broncos. Let's really talk about what this defense did and how Denver's offense tried the very best they could to stay out of the way so their defense could feast. And they played these low scoring games and the, and the defense would force turnovers and Von Miller would, would sack the quarterback. And that's how this team won. Instead of that, we somehow watched this entire season and playoffs, and at the end of it, agreed that it was one of the reasons we are now going to perceive Peyton Manning's career differently moving forward. There's a very strange way of watching and interpreting and analyzing a player's career in a team season. Just one of the myriad of strange ways that we look at playoff success in really stark black and white terms when it never really is that. So I go into just the idea of making or missing the playoffs in general. To make or miss the playoffs, that's the question, right? 
And the playoffs are now here. For hockey, they start tomorrow. And the NBA will start next week. Play-in games are on Tuesday. And the actual playoffs themselves will follow shortly thereafter. So now we're taking note of who is in the playoffs and who is missing the playoffs. And what does it mean for each of these groups of players and teams? And one of the most notable stars that is missing the playoffs in the NBA is Zion Williamson, who I would like to talk about because I think it's an interesting discussion. I want to read to you a quote from Andrew Lopez of ESPN when it comes to Zion. Williamson isn't the first star to miss the playoffs, and he certainly won't be the last. But he is set to become the first player since Shaquille O'Neal in 92-93 to finish in the top 10 in scoring and field goal percentage and miss the playoffs. Charles Barkley actually did this twice in 87-88 and 91-92, end quote. So O'Neal and Barkley, two all-time greats who had similar starts to their career. They were missing the playoffs on teams that were not that good while putting up really notable numbers, finishing in the top 10 scoring and field goal percentage. And from that point forward, our opinions and their careers of them, or our, our, their careers and our opinions of them they changed greatly. They went in two pretty opposite directions. Shaquille O'Neal became one of the best case scenarios for the early stage missing the playoffs type player. He learned from it. The Magic got better. They added Penny Hardaway and Horace Grant. And then while they lost in the finals, Shaq said, I'm going to go to LA. And now I'm here with Kobe Bryant and we're two of the three best players in the league. And we won three titles together because our team was awesome just on our star power alone. And then later on in my career, I'll go join Dwayne Wade in Miami and I'll win one more title. I'll have four. And people will look at me as a winner and a great player, both of which Shaquille O'Neal is. And we'll celebrate that and talk about his career in those terms. And Charles Barkley, who had the same start to his career, a great player in his own right, great rebounder, great scorer on these bad Philadelphia 76er teams. Philly never progressed past that point. So he demands a trade and he goes to Phoenix. They have a really good team in his own right. They most notably run up against Jordan in the 93 finals and they lose in a really close, hard-fought six-game series. That's the closest he comes to winning a title. He goes to Houston at the end of his career. They lose to the Jazz in the conference finals. Uh, And he never really became synonymous with the Shaquille O'Neal career arc. He never became the winner. He actually never won a title. And now Barkley is in that category of one of the greatest players to never win the championship. So Zion seems like he's headed down one of these two paths because his name is already listed with these all-time greats. He had an incredible season. And he's missing the playoffs through no fault of his own. Uh, the Pelicans are just not good. And they aren't coached well. And so the Pelicans are need they're going to need to change that. And based upon what type of change occurs there, it's going to dictate which path Zion goes down. The Charles Barkley path, where he's an incredible player for his whole career, but he doesn't necessarily fulfill the expectations we have for him when it comes to team success. Or the Shaquille O'Neal level, where he gets paired with really good players around him. And because he's so good in his own right, and he has that supporting cast, that manifests itself as championships. I want to read another quote from Andrew Lopez of ESPN when it comes to Zion to really illustrate how good he is playing this year. 
Williamson was limited to just 24 games in his rookie season because of injuries and the pandemic-shortened season, but he made sure to make up for lost time in his sophomore campaign. Williamson averaged 27 points, 7.2 rebounds, and 3.7 assists while shooting 61.1% from the floor. His 27 points per game are the most in NBA history for a player who shot better than 60%. Williamson has scored 2,187 points in his first 85 career games. In the past 40 seasons, only Michael Jordan scored more. Williamson averaged 20.3 points in the paint this season, the most since O'Neal in 99-2000, end quote. These are incredible numbers. Zion is having a historic season. His name is alongside Michael Jordan and Shaquille O'Neal in his statistical accomplishments. It's not going to get any better than that. I've watched Zion this season and I was disappointed in his rookie season because of the aforementioned injuries and just seemed like he was somewhat out of shape and things weren't fully clicking. And I wanted to see this version of Zion we saw at Duke. This incredible bully ball, athletic dynamo who would do things offensively that we don't really see. And this year, everything fell into place. He played for the majority of the season, and he did all these things that we love. And celebrate and said, holy cow, did you see that Zion dunk last night? Did you see Zion running a pick and roll as the ball handler and just driving through eight people? Like, what is going on with this guy? He's unlike anything we've, we're watching in the NBA. So he's having a historic season. And his team is atrocious. Both these things can be true. That's a point I always want people to remember. They don't have to exist in direct contrast to one another. And Zion being really good, it doesn't necessarily have to be a blemish against him that his team is atrocious. Something that I talked about on Monday when it comes to Steph Curry, who is also having a historic season, whose team is also not as atrocious as Zion, but still pretty damn bad. Those things are true, and we acknowledge them as such because Curry has seen past success in the playoffs. So it's easier for us to comprehend this concept in an individual season. But when it starts happening for years, that's where narrative and analyzation, it starts to diverge into these paths of, of strangeness and, and weird applied logic. The team becomes a reflection of the player at some point, which I don't always think is fair. If Zion continues to do this for the next four seasons and the Pelicans continue to run out this Bozo-style roster and have Stan Van Gundy coach it in a manner that's not very good, and the Pelicans are atrocious every year, our perception and our opinion of Zion will shift alongside with that. That's how narratives work within sports. And what we are looking at now and going... He's there with MJ and Shaq. Statistically, we will go, Zion, uh, I don't love this. This, is, this team is now a reflection of you. You should have been better somehow. You should have dragged these players that don't fit you well and are not playing well. You should have somehow turned them miraculously into a playoff team or a championship contender. It's an unrealistic expectation of a player, but one that we have the more that stuff like this continues. The person who I want to close this episode on is Devin Booker of the Phoenix Suns. A player who, for the last three years, has been essentially the same. He's been a 26-point-per-game scorer on an effective field goal percentage of roughly 53. 
during that time frame. The Suns go 19 and 63. They improve to 34 and 39. And this year, they are now 49 and 21 and a game back of the Jazz for first seed in the West. Alongside this team shift, while the player has remained, he has improved incrementally. I I don't want to begrudge him that, but he's been really good for all three of those years. That's the point that I want to stress. So the player has remained relatively static while the team has improved drastically around him. We go from three years ago, these young gun sons who didn't have a lot going on, to the team this year, which has Chris Paul, one of incredible NBA basketball players who has continually made players around him better. And Jay Crowder gets added for experience. And we've seen DeAndre Ayton rise and Mikhail Bridges rise and Cam Johnson rise and campaign off the bench rise. All these things. Our opinion has shifted dramatically of Devin Booker, the player. Again, a person who has remained relatively static in that time as to what he was contributing on the basketball court. So our opinion three seasons ago, this is a losing player on a losing team. And his stats, they're empty calorie stats. They don't contribute to team success. That's our belief. And now, this year, our opinion has done a 180 on Devin Booker. And we say, this guy's really good. He's a winning player on a winning team. And his numbers and his performance directly correlate to his team's success. They directly contribute to the Suns being 49 and 21. And, it, and he does contribute to that. But I want to stress how much a player can't control. Devin Booker's doing the same, three, same thing three years ago in, in a much lesser situation. He's doing the best he can. He's trying to contribute as much as he can to his team's success. But team success relies upon a team. Now he has that in place. And so now we can celebrate Devin Booker for what he is, a really good NBA player. But it took the team falling into place around him for our opinion of him to change. Nothing changed except the team improving around him and the way that we analyze Booker relative to that. Last night's game against the Portland Trailblazers, just a picture-perfect example. It couldn't have worked out better as I was doing the preparation for the show during the day yesterday Then I settled down to watch the game. And the Suns beat the Blazers by one point. Chris Paul plays great, 26 points, 7 assists. He's 11 for 14 from the field. Great Chris Paul stat line. Mikael Bridges, he's got 21-11. Campaign, he's got 21-6-5 off the bench. Contributions from all areas, right? And this lifted up the Suns on a night where Devin Booker didn't really play well. He had 18 points on 5-for-17 shooting. However, he hits the two biggest shots of the entire game. Two free throws with two seconds to go that took Phoenix from down one to up one. McCollum misses a three at the buzzer. Suns win by one point. And I look at a game like last night, and it is the perfect, perfect illustration of the entire themes and ideas of this episode. What three years ago we looked at and said, there's a losing player on a losing team who fills his belly with these empty calories. We can now look at, and last night when Booker doesn't play that well, but because the team puts him into a place where he can be the best version of himself and even on an off night they can win, our analysis of him is that's a winning player on a winning team and he can go five for 17, but his numbers and his performance 
will directly correlate with Phoenix winning. Thank you for listening to No Baller. This podcast can be found on any platform of your choosing. If you could rate and review and help spread the word, it would help me immensely. If you have additional feedback or thoughts that you want incorporated into the show, please email me at chris at thebeehive.com. Last but not least, if you would prefer to listen to this as a video, go to thebeehive.com and find No Baller.